This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. Happy birthday, dear Valley. Happy birthday to you. This has been the President of the United States of America. May God have mercy on our souls. Stu does America. PlayCV.com slash Stu. Use the promo code Stu and save 10 bucks if you're on YouTube. Like this video right now. It always helps the program. We appreciate it. Brad Meltzer is going to be here with a Hitler story you actually haven't heard before. Joe Biden goes full distraction mode in the wake of his documents scandal. But we start by doing the eight steps to a woke apology. This is an educational program today. We want to teach you how to execute the perfect woke apology. Have you done something wrong? Have you been a bad boy? You need to know how to get out of that trouble and apologize in the proper woke way. And today we're going to use as an example... Andrew Callahan. Now, Callahan is a guy who you might not know. Uh, he's, a, he's a YouTuber, relatively popular YouTuber. I'm kind of familiar with him because he just did an HBO documentary. This documentary focused on January 6th. To kind of give you a quick breakdown of who this guy is. He is famous for going into weird situations, talking to weird people, not really interrupting them, just kind of like letting them just kind of say whatever crazy is in the back of their head somewhere. A lot of times the people are hammered while they're doing this, and it uh, always leads to chaos, right? Um, You know, most of the time, I would say, by selection bias, he's uh, picking out people on the right, though sometimes it's people on the left. It's people who will just make idiots of themselves. Let me give you a couple quick tastes. And again, if you happen to be with your kids, probably a good time to skip ahead for maybe a minute or so. Uh, Here is, uh, first of all, uh, Callahan talking to a QAnon supporter. I've kind of been searching for the truth my whole life. And one time I just came across a video that was about Biden and Kamala Harris and Clinton and Obama. They are Satan worshipers, Satanists. They're Satan worshipers, 100%. And I couldn't wait to tell my family. And they just go, they just said, you're crazy. Trump's the worst. How does that make you feel? Sad, I cry all the time. But I just keep praying. That's all I do. I just keep praying and asking God to open their eyes. I I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, maybe she's completely misled, you know, whatever. But like, certainly a sincere belief. And it's sort of just being held up for mockery. Uh, Here's another one, more of the kind of typical thing where they just go and get people to say, to swear a lot on camera. Hey, Joe Biden. Hey, Kamala. Show me your soul, baby. Trump would do it. Trump would show me his soul. I trust him. Why is Joe Biden scared? He's a fucking loser. That's why. (laughs) Okay. So this guy got famous basically on that. 
he released this HBO documentary, which had some footage of behind the scenes, you know, people like Alex Jones and people who were involved in the January 6th thing, uh, you know, a lot of footage from that. So it was kind of a big splash. A couple days after it, though, when he was kind of becoming more mainstream famous, a bunch of women, you know the story, right? We've heard this a hundred times. A bunch of women came out and said, hey, I had a bad experience with him. Uh, me too, me too, me too, me too. So he went down this road, got a bunch of me too allegations. Yesterday, he was silent for a little while. Yesterday, he put out a video. And the video, I don't know, man. I watched it, and it is precisely the boilerplate woke apology. And I want to go through this step by step so you understand how to do this. If you ever want to give a woke apology, a quick, uh, you know, spoiler alert here, you shouldn't want to do that because it never, ever works. But here we go. Woke apology. Let's go through this step by step. Andrew Callahan talking about transparency. All right. Um, I never thought I'd make a video like this, but um, I think there's an important conversation to be had. And I just want to be fully accountable, honest mm. and uh, transparent with all of you guys. Yeah. Uh, yep, that's the thing you got to remember. Step number one. Remember, the word transparency tests well. If you say that a bunch of times, people are going to say, wow, he's telling me the truth. Accountable is another well-testing word. So remember this when you start off your apology. Remember step one. Transparency. Accountability. Key words to use over and over again. All right. Now, step number two. Uh, here it is, executed by Andrew Callahan. So I'd like to start by thanking every single person who's came out uh, in the past week um, to speak about different ways in which my behavior has made them feel um, uncomfortable or pressured during a sexual situation and to people who said that I've made unwanted advances and uh, had a hard time with rejection. Um, I'm sure this was not easy to do. It's never easy to speak out. And it was uh, hard for me to hear as well, because to be honest with you, up until this point, I didn't even really realize that I had this pattern that had affected multiple people. Yes, that's what you do. Step two, compliment the bravery of the people accusing you of sexual assault. You have to say they're brave. They're doing something incredibly brave. They're standing up and they're doing something amazing. You know, sure, if what they're saying is true, you should probably be in jail. I mean, but no, compliment their bravery for saying the thing that you're saying might not be true. Make sure to do that because that shows you're woke, right? This shows that you're kissing up to that side. Therefore, giving them all the power. You can say, okay, well, the, uh, the, the woke media can come to you and say, wow, what an enlightened person. Of course, spoiler alert, this doesn't work. We'll get to that here in a second. Okay, next up, what do you do next? You got to kind of tell the other side of the story, your side of the story for a moment. And Callahan does that next. I'd also like to apologize for my silence. Um, I think that when this stuff first came out, I was in a state of denial mm. and shock. Um, I was, you know, just riding the high for my movie that just came out. And then within 48 hours, I was denounced by my closest collaborators. And uh, my name was printed in, in, in 40 different news outlets uh, next to the words sexual misconduct. And I just kind of spiraled into a mental health crisis. Uh, I'm okay now, but I don't really think this is about me. Mm, step three, very good effort at step three there. Cultivate sympathy. You see, he had to give his side of the story. Here he was on the high from a wonderful new movie release. And then all of a sudden, his whole world became a hellhole. It crashed down on top of him. 
And now he wants you to know that while it's not about him, he does want you to know that everything crashed down. And that explains some of his other bad behavior of not talking about this apparently fast enough. So in case you were worried about that. All right, let's move on to step four. I really want to do better and be fully accountable for everything that I've done. Accountable. So that being said, I want to make a few things clear. Um, I've always taken no for an answer. Um, As far as consent, I've never uh, overstepped that line. Um, But, you know, I think I want to have a more nuanced and important conversation about power dynamics, pressure, and uh, coercion. Mm, I love that. There you go. First of all, step four is ruling out the worst but then show understanding. So he's ruling out the worst. You might say, wait a minute, if he sexually assaulted somebody, they must have said no, and he just went along with it anyway. Uh, That's what you would think sexual assault typically is. But he wants you to know that he did not do that. Now, whether they're accusing him of that is not really material here for your apology. You just have to say, okay, I know where your mind's going. It's the worst thing possible. Um, I'm going to rule that out. Don't Just believe me. Believe me. That didn't happen. But there is some understanding I need to show that maybe I didn't act in the perfect way here. And that's why you rule out the worst, but then show understanding. That way you're kind of given a little ground, right? You're saying, hey, I know I'm a bad guy. I've did, done some bad things. But I, just so you know, I never went over that line. I didn't do that. This is key to the eight steps of a of, of, of proper woke apology after a Me Too incident. And he's doing a great job here. You know, I, I will say the whole power structure point, this is a point that comes up all the time in the Me Too conversation. Basically what he's saying here is, you know, I never, I was never out on a, a date with a woman and she said, no, I don't want to hook up and I forced her to do that. Of course I would never do that. The issue here is that I'm a famous YouTuber. And because I'm a famous YouTuber, I am, I I have a a power over other individuals. They can't really say no. You see, if I come in and I say, hey, I want to do something and I start doing it, they can't say no. They're too intimidated by how many followers I have on YouTube and therefore they can't exercise their agency as a human being. Now, this is a fascinating one because... It's similar to what the left does and the woke side of the argument does with voter ID, right? Voter ID. We, we can't have a voter ID law because we have to, us, us white elites have to protect all the uh, minority people out there who can't. They just can't do it. You know it. I know it. Minorities can't come up with their own way to get voter ID. They can't get a driver's license. What are you, crazy? So us white people have to come in and protect them from that requirement. The same thing is at play here. The idea that because you're on YouTube or you're a comedian or whatever, that you have so much power that a woman can't say no to your advances is insulting to the woman. The woman who absolutely has a choice in this matter. If she says no and you decide to walk through that stop sign, you are a criminal. We have laws to prevent that. If you're famous and she goes along with it because she thinks you're famous and wants to hook up with you because you're famous, that is a totally different piece of commentary on you and on them. But that is not a crime. That is not even close to a crime. Look, he tries to allude to what he's doing here. He doesn't really explain it, but it's important to understand if what he's describing here is what it seems This is not only an insult to him and kind of like kind of yucky behavior, but also it's an insult to whatever women went along with this. 
the fact that like we can't live in a society where women lose their agency because you got a bunch of YouTube followers. That's not a, that's not a civilization. I don't think any of us want to be a part of. But there's more to this, and this is a multi-layered approach. Let's move on to the next step. I think for for a long time, I was behaving in a way that I actually thought was normal. Um, I thought that you know, going home from the bar alone made you a loser. Um, I thought that persistence was a form of flattery, and I thought that you know, mm-hmm. if at first somebody was reluctant, you know, they're playing hard to get. Just try harder, and if you think someone's feeling you, you know, make a physical advance and uh, see if they go with it. Hmm. Persistence is an interesting word here. What, what is what is persistence? I if you go back, Jimmy Stewart in uh, you know, it's a wonderful life was persistent. He's in his football uniform. They're walking down the street. He's sort of persistent. Was it that kind of persistence? I guess you could describe Jeffrey Dahmer as persistent too. Was it that kind? What kind of persistence was this? This is an incredible step because it's always interesting to do this. You have to make sure your transparency is as vague as humanly possible. What the hell actually happened here? Did you do these things that you're being accused of? They're not saying, I I noticed he was persistent. That's not what they're saying. They're saying he went way past these lines. He's saying, well, I was a bit persistent and I would go in for a move and see if they went along with it. I mean, I, you know, what does that mean exactly? I mean, most of us, I mean, I could, my first kiss with my wife, I did not say, ma'am, might I kiss your lips? That's not how that happens most of the time. You try to feel it out. You kind of lean your head in. And hopefully she leans in, too. I mean, how do how do these things start? Where did you go wrong? Most women are not going to call, you know, have a big Me Too crisis over something like that. So that's step number five. Make your transparency as vague as possible for the proper woke apology. Um, And here, let's move on to the next step with Andrew Callahan, the YouTuber. I think that especially I realized when so many uh, young people, especially young men, rushed to defend me uh, when this stuff first started coming out, that this type of sex pest behavior is normalized. And a lot of people think this stuff is normal when I don't think that it is. And I think that I want to be fully responsible for not having a fluid understanding of consent and what enthusiastic two-way consent looks like. A fluid understanding. Handing of consent. I mean, I understand you're trying to be vague here, but you're, 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 this is a masterclass. Uh, of course, you kind of give the half apology for things you're not exactly accused for. And this is, might be the most diabolical part of this, though. This is when you redirect the anger from you to the people who are actually your supporters. People who like you, who built your career, who love your content, who maybe were a little defensive when people came out and accused you of horrible crimes. But then if you kind of just say, well, you know what? I was disappointed in the young men who came out and defended me. Look at, don't look at me. Look at the young men. It's a young men problem. It's not a me problem. It's a young men problem. In fact, the people who were most dedicated to me, they deserve the finger pointed at them because they're the real problem. And I saw that problem and here I am to rescue the rest of the world from the problem of the people who made me all of this money. That's honestly just pathetic. But of course it fits perfectly is as step six in our woke apology tour. Let's go on to step seven. That being said, a lot of the things that have been said online about me uh, are not true. A lot of things are missing really important contextual information Mm. that I think would change people's interpretation of a lot of these situations. But I'm not here to invalidate anybody's lived experience. Ah. Uh, If you feel pressured, you know, 
that's just what it is. Good keyword. That's the way. First of all, keep your denials vague. You're denying things. You're denying really terrible things. You're not telling us what you're denying or what context is missing or what isn't true that's been said about you. And always throw in the words lived experience because that's important. Remember, if people are saying things that are false about you, what you should do is say they're false. You shouldn't say, well, I'm glad they had this lived experience of this completely false thing they're saying. Lived experience means nothing. If, if what you're saying is basically they're wrong, which is fine if you didn't do these things. Finally, step eight. I'm 25 years old and I have my whole life ahead of me, but I really think that I need to do some serious work on myself and uh, figure myself out. So I'm gonna start therapy sessions pretty much immediately. Um, also, not to blame alcohol, but I truly believe that uh, alcohol was a contributing factor to my poor decision-making. And I think that alcohol in general has had a devastating impact on my life. So I think I'm going to uh, make the decision to join the 12-step program for Alcoholics Anonymous. And during this journey into sobriety, I want to take a serious step back from public life. And like I said, figure myself out. Mm, there you go. Now, look, I hope and this is, of course, step eight, you got to announce the rehab and then you just wait it out. I hope that this is real. I hope this is real. I hope he has a, a moment of awakening here. But it's important to understand this stuff doesn't work. They, they want to scalp here. They want your heart. They want your soul. I would like to be, live in a country where we could apologize when we've done something wrong and people would understand some nuanced thing like this. First of all, it's never going to work. Second of all, it's important to make sure you're being clear here. Did you actually do something wrong? Or are you trying to get out of trouble? If you did something wrong, then say you did something wrong and move on. Explain maybe what it is and then move on. And I will say, you don't deserve, your, your audience doesn't deserve an apology for when you hooked up in some weird way. You don't need to apologize to YouTube. You need to apologize to the people you affected. That's it. Them, personally. No one deserves uh, to hear about what is going on in your life in this capacity. You don't owe it to anyone. You owe it to the people that you may have affected. And that's it. That's it. That's the end of it. But we live in this weird world where every little thing is another, another confession. Everything's a confession, Cam. Guys, look, just try not to do things that are wrong. If you do them, then admit it to the people who actually matter and stop trying to please the woke mob because they're coming for your soul and they will never go away until they have it. Oh, have you uh, booked your flight to Davos yet? I hope you have. You know, I hope you're one of the elites that are controlling uh, the global economy and planning everything in our future. There's a lot out there that can be very scary. And if you want to maybe hedge against the crazy stuff that's going on in Davos and in Washington, I would recommend you diversify into gold. How about birch gold? Uh, look, for over 5,000 years, gold has withstood the test of time. And the good news is you can still actually get it. In fact, you can own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. All you got to do is text the word STU to 989898. Claim your free info kit on gold. With almost 20 years' experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs, Birch Gold can help you. Secure your future with gold. Start today with a free info kit. All you have to do uh, with no obligation is just text STU to 989898. 
It's Stu to the number 989898. Get started today with Birch Gold. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm joined up now by the one and only Brad Meltzer. He has a brand new book out. It's called The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. You can pick up a copy wherever books are sold. And you should totally do this because Brad's books are awesome. And this is the nonfiction world, which I'm really excited about. I have not read it yet, but I tried to read everything I can about World War II, especially the Nazis. I mean, I think every guy is like that. I'm I'm certainly like that. And this one for me is, you know, I, I obsess over World War II. You know, I've consumed mm. every... But this was a story about World War II I never heard of. Yeah. And I was like, how did I not hear of this? This is a secret plot to kill Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and FDR at the height of World War II. I'm like, how do I not know this story? And and I found it on the internet of all things. And the internet's not good for much these days. Yeah. But man, it has historical facts that were obscure. And I found this story. It was about a half page, page long. And I just went down the rabbit hole. And we spent the last two years doing research, uh, having... We hired people who speak Russian and German so we can find out and read some Nazi diaries. We were all in on this. And uh, the Nazi conspiracy is one of the craziest stories you've never heard. So this is, I mean, people know, obviously, like there was a tough time trying to bring together, you know, between Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt, like trying to bring these three together to make this thing work, to oppose all the fascism and, and, and all the, you know, the, the access uh, powers of that time. It was not an easy thing. And so they're trying to go through this process, and this is kind of where this plot takes place. Yeah, so it's 1943. It's obviously the height of the war, and Joseph Stalin wants us to invade continental Europe. He's getting decimated by the Nazis. He's like, I need your help. We're sending weapons, of course, but he's like, no, no, come and invade the east, what becomes eventually the battle of, and, and the invasion of Normandy. Mm -hmm. And FDR realizes we got to get on the same page. Bring And, and he, he's the middleman because Churchill and Stalin hate each other. And he's like, we got to get the big three together. I'm going to bring in Churchill. I'm going to bring in Stalin. Make sure they come to this thing. It's in Tehran, Iran. Of all places. Because Joseph Stalin demands it's there. They say, how about Alaska? How about somewhere close? How about somewhere distant? No, he wants Tehran because there's a railroad there. He has an, an embassy there. He knows security is good there. And the desert will provide secrecy. So here's the moment. FDR flies to Tehran. He's got the motorcade coming down the center of the city. Everyone's waving at the motorcade. They're all trying to crane their necks and get a look at the president. And the president's waving back. But what none of them know is the person in the car is not the president. It's a Secret Service decoy. The actual president, the real FDR, is ducked down in the back of a beat-up sedan across the city. He's flying through the side streets because they're worried there's a Nazi assassin who's going to murder him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy, but that's the opening chapter of the book. Jeez. And the... I, the this is one of those things that it's hard to believe it was real, right? Like, it's hard to believe. You, I guess, you know, Hitler gets wind of something like this. He's going to try to do something about it. But, I mean, they really, what could have happened if this was successful? I mean, the entire world could have changed. No, and that's exactly, and you'll, you'll see exactly how close it comes. There's a, because we all know the stories of FDR and we know Winston Churchill. We've heard those names. We know Joseph Stalin. Those are all popular names. But I love the people you've never heard of. There's a guy named Otto Skorzeny in the book. He's a Nazi. 
and Otto Skorzeny gets Paige to go to Adolf Hitler's secret headquarters, the Wolf Slayer. And when he gets there, it's because Hitler is bringing together all his special ops guys. He wants to find the toughest one, the best fighter. Lines them all up shoulder to shoulder in a big room, and he quizzes them with one question. What do you think of Italy? And they all give their answers, saying, oh, Italy's on our side and we'll fight to the death with them. But Nazi, Otto Skorzeny, shouts above everybody else that he says, I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And what he's gambling on is he knows that Adolf Hitler's from Austria, and a true Austrian forever resents Italy because in World War I, a key piece of Austria was taken by Italy and never given back. And Adolf Hitler turns to this Nazi, Otto Skorzeny, he's like, you're my guy. And he sends him on a secret mission. And when you see the secret mission, it's so bananas that we, we literally <laughs> said to the editor, you need to put a photograph. Josh mentioned on my co-writer, said, well, you've got to put a photograph in the pages of the book because no one will believe it really happened, this secret mission. You'll see the moment of the mission. It earns Otto Skorzeny the name, the most dangerous man in Europe. And I'm telling you, you've never heard this story. It's the wildest Nazi adventure you've ever not heard of. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you, is it surprising to you now, like look the way the world is today, that, that all, all these different countries with different belief systems and totally different systems were able to come together and recognize there was a real enemy on the other side and to work together to even have a meeting like that? Well, you know, and, and the, the way we tell the story in the United States is, you know, we tell the story, we punch the Nazis in the jaw, we save the day for democracy, and it almost seems like a foregone conclusion that good was going to beat evil. Yeah. But it wasn't like that, because just as you said, there's all these different reasons. It's not, you know, the Allied powers, even when you look at them, obviously the United Kingdom and the United States stand strong together. But the only reason the Soviet Union was on our side, they weren't on our side in the beginning of the war. They were actually with the Nazis yeah. at the beginning of the war. They switched sides when Hitler invades. And they're like, oh, we should probably join the Allies because we're getting our butts kicked. Yeah. And, and it's not that they're on the good guys in this moment. Stalin's a bad guy. He's doing things back then that are, you know, just a, an authoritarian who's, you know, running around with just as much death going on, obviously until World War II. Um, and to try and hold this kind of alliance together, it's precarious. It's one of those things you realize, when, especially when you watch this, that everything is kind of hanging on by a thread. And luckily, FDR is the right man for the job at that moment in time because he's, he's a good charmer. He knows how to charm Stalin. He knows how to charm Churchill. Yeah, that's an interesting part because, I mean, you know, you have the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, pact where Soviets, Germans, they're together. And, like, there's no better way to break up a pact by completely invading the guy here in the pact with. It tends right? like, to ruin a good party. <laughs> it tends to ruin that. But, like, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we would even work together at that point. I mean, it, they were dealing with so much terror on their, uh, during that particular, uh, you know, chapter of, the, of, of World War II where they needed help. But, like, the idea that we would all work together and, and make sure that this went down the way it did, it was not a foregone conclusion. And I actually think some of it is just because Hitler had two giant, among many, miscalculations, right? One of them, of course, we all know is he thinks Russia is going to, he thinks the Soviets are going to give up. Yeah. They're not going to fight that strong. And, of course, that's, he's wrong. They're going to fight to the death, which they do. Um, but the other miscalculation he makes is about America itself, right? They tell him this, it never had to be an alliance when we didn't want to be in World War II. You know, right? Like, we, after World War I, we lost so many people here. We didn't want to fight again in another war across the world. And the stock market crashes. FDR is elected to save the country from ruin. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we get in the war, we don't want to fight Nazis even. We get in the war because of Pearl Harbor. And at that point, we're just fighting Japan. We don't declare war against Germany. We don't want to fight Nazis. We're like, we're going to fight Japan because they attacked us. And it's Adolf Hitler, who is other great miscalculation, 
is he declares war on the United States. They say the day that Pearl Harbor happens and we declare war on the Japanese, Adolf Hitler slaps his leg in delight and says, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And I'm going to declare war on them. He says, strong people declare war. They don't wait to have war declared on them. And it's a giant miscalculation by him. And Winston Churchill remembers this one thing, this one quote about America. And he says that America is like a gigantic boiler. And once you light a fire under it, there's no amount of energy that it won't produce. It'll just unbelievable burn. And he's actually right, right? We get our fire lit and that power comes immediately. And, and Hitler is the one who's now makes everyone scramble together. But that miscalculation obviously costs him forever. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God <laughs> Thank is God. right. I mean, 100%. Yeah. And, and to me, you know, when you, when you look at this story, you're like, how do you not, how do you even know these details? And what was amazing to me is, you know, back then the Nazis used to keep their top intelligence on what they called brown sheets. They were little brown sheets of paper is why they got the nickname. They were very good with code words, as you can tell too there. Mm -hmm. And, but one of the things they did is they would lock them up and you had to destroy them after you read them. It was like the Mission Impossible grief case for Nazis. But uh, one of their, their head of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, used to keep extensive diaries and he would write all the secrets that he learned on the brown sheets in his diaries. And it's there we were able to see that, you know, how in the Enigma machines, we cracked the Nazi codes. I didn't know they had cracked ours. Mm. They were listening in and had the international cables between FDR and Winston Churchill. We don't know to this moment the exact date they knew about the big three meeting, but they knew the big three were meeting in Tehran. They had a guy on the ground. They had Otto scores any of this Nazi who was ready to kill, and they had an opportunity. I'm fascinated by how much of our understanding of this period really comes from that diary. Goebbels' diary is like the, you know, back backroom conversations, like his reflections from moment to moment, how they, you know, uh, went back and forth from different, you know, variations on fascism and their understanding of it. So much of it comes from from really that one document. I mean, yeah, I, and, and most of this, I will say, most of this, did, most of the plot to kill him did not come from them. We got pieces hmm. and, and bits of how they got information, but we were relying on, you know, the NKVD, the precursor mm -hmm. to the KGB, right? Russian intelligence. We had some things from there that we were trying to figure out, but it's one of the greatest secret keepers in the whole universe. We had the Nazi documents that we could find, half of them were destroyed. They mm. destroyed some, we destroyed some, and you know, so we're, we're piecing this thing together. And it was obviously amazing to watch. There was a, a 19 year old guy on the NKVD who was part of what they call the, the light cavalry. He used to ride his bicycle around Iran. And he's the guy who stumbles on a group of Nazi parachuters who come in. It's a 19 year old kid. A 19-year-old kid who's responsible for arguably changing history, and he winds up, you know, giving a big speech about it years and years later. And right before he dies, he backs up the story. And right, be, you know, he, and, and to me, deathbed confessions. When you're about to die, you know, that's when you don't want to lie anymore. People want the truth <laughs> yeah, out. And he's yeah. like, "This is what happened to me on that day," and that story was wow. an incredible piece of this as well. How? I mean, going, you find a story like this and you know it's a great story, but you don't know at the beginning of this, you're going to be able to dig up all this detail, enough detail to write a book about it, right? Like you, you go into that research process hoping you're going to be able to dig up this stuff, but you don't know. No, that's, ex and the hard part is, you know, I'm amazed at how many historians today will write books and say, here's exactly what happened. I know everything. And I'm like, that's completely reckless. You can't possibly know everything in this. So much is lost. And all the people who were there, almost all of them are dead. So we tell you in the book, listen, we don't know, nobody knows the date that the big three 
that it was revealed and the Nazis figured out that they were all meeting together. Mm. We say there are pieces of this puzzle that are missing. We don't know. We also know Otto Skorzeny, who I mentioned, this, you know, this Nazi fighter, later in the war, he's like, I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with it. He said, they asked me to go and kill them, but I didn't do it. I didn't want any in on it. Now, you're like, oh, then he didn't, then he didn't do it. Except they knew if he said he was going to do it, we would have hung him. Like, he right. would, have been, he would have been a dead man. So you've you got to look at the motivations. And, and I think one of the things you realize is what, this story, when it came out, when FDR first comes back and says, yeah, the Nazis tried to kill us, it makes the front page of every newspaper. And then Normandy happens, and it becomes a footnote. The Nazi conspiracy mm. story gets lost. And what is interesting to me is that the Soviets had a big part in saving the day. They were, their intelligence was one of the groups that actually found out what the Nazis were up to. But as the Cold War erupted, here in America, we don't want to tell stories where the Russians are the good guys. So the story about this plot shifts. Mm. And it becomes, oh, the Russians were trying to trick us. It was trying to do that. They start calling it Operation Long Jump, even though there's no proof it was ever called Long Jump. And, and the details shift over time. And to me, it proves that, I don't know how to say it, but history is not like math. There's not just one answer. There are perspectives. And depending on whose perspective you hear, you get a different story. I, I, I want to get into this a little bit more here in a second, because I think it's, it's finding the intersection, right, of all these different perspectives where you can really know what the truth is and try to build off of that with your understanding. We have more with Brad Meltzer uh, coming up here in just a second. We're back with Brad Meltzer, author of the brand new book, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. It's out now. And also you have another book, another kid's book is out. Is it today? Yeah, so it came out today. I am John Lewis, the mm. great civil rights icon. Sure. Um, and, you know, what people don't know is John Lewis was uh, one of the early supporters of our I Am series. You know, we did I Am Amelia Earhart, I Am Abraham Lincoln, I Am George Washington, to teach kids and give them better heroes to look up to, teach, mm -hmm. teach them lessons of kindness and compassion and perseverance. And John Lewis loved our uh, I Am Rosa Parks book. And so when we were doing our I Am Martin Luther King Jr. book, I was like, well, I need someone to proof this for us and, and be an advisor for us. And I was like, um, sir, you march with Dr. King. Would you mind reading this? And he read the book and was our advisor on the book. And my only regret, Stu, is that I never got to tell him we were doing a book about him. Oh, wow. And it's a book that's about teaching your kids how to get in good trouble, what he called good trouble, necessary trouble. Mm. What he said, when you, you know, teaching your kids when you see injustice to use your voice and speak up. And when John Lewis was a little boy, if you were black and a white person was walking at you, you were expected to cross the street. You had to go to the other side of the street. And his parents used to tell him, don't make trouble. Like, don't sure. just lay low. And his grandmother was built differently. And she <laughs> used to just respectfully always, of course, but say, you know, excuse me, but I'm just going to walk this way. Thank you very much. And he saw that lesson as a boy. And he saw the lessons of Rosa Parks and Dr. King. And he used to, you know, of course, always protest nonviolently, never lost his temper. He said the number one question that people used to ask him is how do you not lose your temper? People are spitting at you and kicking you and beating you and cursing at you. How do you never lose your temper? And Stewie said the answer was his faith, that his faith was the thing that gave him that strength. And he used to define faith as believing in something so deeply that you can make a way out of no way. And I love that idea. Mm. I'm making a way out of no way. I want my daughter to hear that lesson. I want my sons to hear that lesson. 
And that's what I Am John Lewis as a book is about. Mm. You know I love the kids' books. Both my kids, Zach and Ainsley, were in here. You were nice enough to sign a bunch of the books for them. We have the whole series, at least, I think. You said there's 30 of them now? There's 30 of them. Our our bookshelf in your house is deep. It is. It is. It is. But one of the things I like about it quite a bit is, uh, you know, conservatives, generally speaking, you know, there's certain people we look toward, like, you know, people like George Washington that you you have books about. Um, Abraham Lincoln, you look at that type of person. And some of the books are not necessarily the ones, the, the, the figures typically that I think a conservative would go to, but you can still pull great lessons out of that. And I like the way that you, you, you teach that way. I mean, Lewis is an example. I mean, certainly didn't agree with his late politics, but there's great lessons from his life. Well, that's say, what we always say. Yeah. We, we don't do politics. Right. We it's, never say, it, here's what like he that, believed, yeah. here's what bills he passed. Yeah. We never do that in any of our books. And it's why mm-hmm. I can come on your show and I can literally go on NPR. Yep. Uh, I, the whole point of the Ordinary People Change the World series books is to show America that there are things we agree on. We're, we're fighting so many battles today, but we all agree that kindness is important to teach our kids. You know, perseverance, humility. Remember when humility was a great American value? Mm. We've lost that. Yeah. So I did. I am Neil Armstrong because Neil Armstrong never used to use the word we. He used to use the word I. I mean, he's sorry. He never used to use the word I. He used to use the word we. You know, <laughs> we did this. We accomplished it, he'd say. And he didn't just mean his fellow astronauts. He meant the scientists, the mathematicians, the people who sewed his spacesuit. We did this. And, and my God, we got to teach our kids the value of humility again. Yeah. Um, you know, I was surprised to hear that. Was it Pennsylvania where there was a couple of your books have been pulled out of schools, and I think Rosa Parks was one of them. It's unbelievable. So they banned in York County, Pennsylvania, uh, last year they banned I Am Rosa Parks and I Am Martin Luther King Jr. And it had nothing to do with the content of the book. Mm. What they had done was, is they made a list of books that they thought were good to teach uh, kids about race. And they said they wanted to read all the books before they allowed the books to be taught in schools, which to me is a good thing. Sure. Read the books, make sure they're appropriate for kids. But the fast one that they pulled is that they, a year went by, they never read any of the books. These yeah. books take 10 minutes to read. Right. And it was books by Malala and, you know, amazing, incredible stories. Nothing, nothing that was controversial at all, but they just froze all the books. Mm. And what was amazing about it is uh, I got word about the, what started as a freeze became a ban. The teachers didn't know if they could use them. A year has gone by. Kids start protesting. I got a call from my friends at Fox News saying, can you come and talk about this, Brad? I got a call from CNN. When Fox News and CNN agree, you know something's wrong. (laughs) And they knew you can't ban Rosa Parks and Dr. King, right? You cannot ban those stories. We are are two of the top selling books on these subjects. And everyone was like just aghast at it. The nice part was, is I went down to the school board, the kids in the school board said to me, and the school said, can you come and speak to the school board? So I go on Zoom. At that point, it was the height of COVID. I I said, uh, I'd like to read to you from I Am Rosa Parks. And I read to them and it says, I'm not a politician. I'm not a famous business person. I'm just an ordinary person. But I'm also proof there's no such thing as an ordinary person. And I said to them, that's what you're hiding from kids. Lessons like that. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd save the day for democracy. I'm like, I've (laughs) done it. I've done it again. And then all these kids start speaking after me. And they're saying, how dare these books that we love so much, you don't let us have these books about these amazing icons. And they give speeches like the final message of Braveheart. I mean, I wanted to sign up and, and you know, be taught by them. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't need me at all. But the, the ban got reversed and the books, of course, went back. And now those books are being taught in the schools. Yeah, how do you balance this as, a, as, as an author, right? Someone who obviously loves books and, and wants people to be able to read books. 
that controversy goes back and forth a lot. And sometimes it goes into these ridiculous extremes, like with your books. And sometimes, you know, there's a, a controversy about a book that maybe isn't age appropriate. Uh, you know, book bans, book burning is obviously something we all we all used to think was really bad. Um, lately, I think from both sides, you're seeing some weird uh, flares into uh, this behavior. Yeah, you know, I I'll just tell you, um, I think that if you're banning books, you're on the wrong side of history. Mm. I really do. If you look at any book bans over time, eventually you're revealed as the bad guy of the story. And, I, and listen, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you have to find age-appropriate books. You have right. to find content that's appropriate for kids always. Mm -hmm. But libraries are supposed to be full of ideas that make you mad. If you love every book in the library, it's not a good library. They're designed right. by, by, to make sure that there are ideas opposite of you. If you just show your kids only the things that you love, they've only seen half the world. And you gotta teach them things that, you know, there, there's, if we, if we just start banning every book that we don't like, that's a slippery slope I do not wanna be down. I, I think you gotta, you know, what you have to do is realize kids are resilient. And you got to realize that there are things that, of course, we have to make sure are age appropriate. But once we start saying, I don't like this content for this reason, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're just moments away from what a book ban becomes a book burning. What do you think about the sort of the, the sort of retroactive justice we have um, with some of our historical characters? You obviously writ, wrote about, you've written about a ton of them. And some of them are very flawed, right? I mean, like you can go through and pick through these lives and find really bad things at times. Um, how do you deal with that? Because I feel like what we're going through now is a process where people of today are judging these people from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 50 years ago. By today's, by today's standards. standards yes. That they didn't even know existed. Of course. This, is, this to me strikes me as unfair and also very bad for our understanding of our history. I always say, you know, every... We've done George Washington, as I am George Washington, I am Abraham Lincoln, I am Rosa Parks, I am Walt Disney. Mm. Every single person that we've done, we get a letter from someone saying, that person's not a hero. Mm. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and what I always write back to them is I say, listen, I said, if you're looking for perfection in someone, the only thing that's perfect is God. That's it. Everyone else is flawed. We're all flawed. And if you're looking for perfection, there are no heroes. Nobody is like that. And that's the standard to me. I mean, you know, one of the things I always, you know, what I say about is, let's pretend it's 50 years from now. And they look back and they say, Brad and Stu, I can't believe these guys. They wore these shoes made by Nike mm -hmm. that they knew were being built in slave shop conditions. Right. How dare, if that's the big issue back then, mm -hmm. that we're somehow the most horrible people in the world, those stand, like we're all doing our best, right? We're doing our best. And to me, yes, there are things that make you flawed, but like I had someone who wrote me, we did a Benjamin Franklin book who said, Benjamin Franklin was a slave owner. And I said, did you know that Benjamin Franklin also spent the last years of his life fighting against you know, slavery? He was, had an abolitionist movement that he was the head of. Yeah. And I was like, you can't possibly look for that perfection and expect to have anyone that you look up to. And he was one of the most brave abolitionists. Absolutely, number he, one, he yeah. was the guy. He started mm -hmm. the organization and was the president of it. And I'm still getting letters from people because what we do is we cherry pick and we want to say, look, look, I found the flaw, and therefore that person is a horrible person. But if your measure is perfection, you will always fail. Mm, that's great. Well, the books are fantastic. I you know, read them all with my kids, and I could highly recommend uh, if you have kids in that uh, younger age group, they're going to love these books to learn about these topics that apparently in some schools 
They're not even allowing you to, <laughs> to teach. Uh, Brad Meltzer, and I'm excited for, Daddy's excited for the Nazi conspiracy, the secret plot to kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. It's out right now. Make sure to grab a copy wherever books are sold. Brad, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Dan. I love your transition from kids to Nazi. That yeah. was perfect. <laughs> Only on this show will you get kids and Nazi talk in the same segment. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> Thank you. Republicans are fiscally demented, said the guy who brought on the highest inflation in 40 years. We're at the point now where regular eggs cost more than Fabergé eggs, and uh, no one seems to care. No one seems to care. But, but Republicans are the ones that are fiscally demented. This is all part of the distraction program. Uh, that is going on to distract you from the document stuff and all the border and Ukraine and all the other stuff going on. Biden also is bringing out the classics. He says we should be retraining cops. Why should you always shoot with deadly force? Because that's what cops do when they come out. They're like, hey, uh, you guys got a speeding ticket. And then they try to shoot you in the head. And they should stop doing that. They should stop doing that. Uh, Any by the way, anybody who knows guns. Uh, will tell you, no, do not. When you're shooting, you're shooting for a reason. You're not going to try to shoot him in the foot. That's not how this works. It's dangerous to do that, and it creates danger for the officer as well. But this is Biden, and this is what Biden does. Take a moment, head on over to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew. Save yourself 10 bucks. You deserve those 10 bucks. Go out and spend it on crack like Hunter Biden. We'll see you tomorrow.